Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. And welcome back to Soul to Soul. I'm Rabbi Ari Kiman. It's great being with you here today. And there's so much to talk about. You know, we are in the Torah portions that are very interesting, fascinating concept, talking about the building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle. And this week you talk about the garments, the vestitudes that were worn by the priests, the Kohanim who served and ministered in the temple. And of course, we got Purim coming up. So there's been a lot of talk about Purim. I'd like to do a little hybrid to talk about both. And of course, looking at the portion this week, people oftentimes say it's the clothes that make the man. But I would like to caution us as much as, of course, we ought to dress the very best we can. We don't judge a book by its cover. How often have you seen people who might be well-dressed, but inside there's a rotten personality? And of course, vice versa is true. How many times have we seen people that might look like a schlepper, but indeed they are wonderful people. And it's not about judging a book by its cover. It's not about judging a person by the clothing that they're wearing. In fact, we know that if you look at, take an olive. If you look at a simple olive, olives taste great on their own. But we know that deeper within the olive, if you squeeze it out, you'll get the precious oil that emerges from it. And so it's important as well, every individual, every single individual, even the one who sometimes gives us the impression of not being the most wonderful type of person, even they actually deep down, if you look at the core, their pentelid, the essence, the neshama, the soul that was within each of us, that's an actual part of God. And that's the true essence of each person. And then we realize that indeed, every person, as you look in the... Look in the streets, we dig. If you look outside, it just looks, it just looks as it does. But if you look deeper, well, first you could uncover some schmutz, some dirt, and probably with people as well. If you're going to dig on the surface or superficially, of course we could uncover all types of schmutz and problems with people. But if you could dig deep enough, dig much deeper, and you're going to uncover precious gems, you're going to uncover the gold, that is within, and fountains, reservoirs of depth that every person possesses. And that takes me to the Mishkan, to the tabernacle that the Jews built, because I think within it we could find this very lesson in our lives that is so important and relevant for us to see. And we'll see how that connects with Purim too. And that is that, indeed, you wonder, well, for the creation of the universe, which we haven't even scratch the surface of really truly appreciating the depth, the dynamic of what this world truly is. Even in the modern age of people studying and going in outer space, we still have not even truly really have any iota of understanding of the magnitude of this creation that God made. And yet the Torah really doesn't dedicate very much space to describing the creation of this world. 31 verses in Genesis and that's all. Yet when it comes to the building of the Mishkan, there the Torah dedicates so many chapters. We read this week and last week and next week and the week after and the week after that. And then the whole book of Ayikra is dedicated to describe the service that was done, that was performed within the temple. So obviously the Torah seems to be a lot more concerned about the home we built for God than the world that God created for us. And the answer very simple is for God created a world for humankind is no big deal. We're talking about God after all. But for us finite human beings to make a home for the infinite almighty God here in this world, 
That is revolutionary. That is miraculous. That is what the human being is capable of doing. And we have to realize the fact that we exist here means that we are indispensable to God's plan for this world. That's right. You and me and our family and every single human being, regardless of the race, color, religion, deserves to be here. God wants us to be here. And each person is created uniquely in their specific way. As Jewish people with a chosen nation, chosen for what? Chosen to fulfill our mandate by following the Torah and doing the mitzvahs in order to fulfill our purpose in this world. And every other human being is chosen for their purpose. How they function and make this world the divine place that God wanted it to be. And every one of us plays our indispensable, unique role in making this world the world that God wants it. Now, if we look at this Mishkan, we look at the tabernacle, the sanctuary the Jews built, and we could see the various furnishings within it. And to me, one of them that stands out is the Aaron, the Ark. Two aspects about it. Firstly, if we look at the boxes, you had an outer box of gold, which is symbolic of our outer personality, which certainly should be one of gold. But let's look at the inner box. Where do we start? The inside, the middle box, was one of wood. And the innermost box, again, was gold. Why three boxes? Couldn't it all be one box? But perhaps it's symbolic also of us, of the human condition. That our deepest essence, our core, as we said, is pure, solid gold. We are created, we are fashioned in the image of Hashem. But at the same time, there is the wooden element. What's the difference between gold and wood? As a child, my father was working in the gold industry then, and... Oftentimes, I had very interesting experiences in seeing what he did in his business. And sometimes he would take me to 47th Street in Manhattan if I had a day off school or for whatever reason I would accompany him. And I would see one of the interesting things he did was he would buy gold dust. You take your jewelry in to be polished, your favorite jeweler, those who polish gold. And, of course, in Manhattan, there are quite a few on 47th Street, which is the diamond district, the jewelry district of the city. And my father would buy bags and bags of dust. And I used to think, why are we buying garbage bags of dust? But then he would take me to his refinery, where all these bags of dust were all put into a very hot furnace of fire. And the dust disappeared. It melted away. And you were left with a liquid form of gold, the high temperature that he would burn it, boil it up at. And of course, that gold was then would solidify into bars of gold. And with those gold bars, he would, of course, do whatever he did, whatever he had to do in order to provide a living for our family. But it was fascinating to watch that gold is indestructible. Gold is the very essence of who we are. On the other hand, wood. Wood, we could have the most beautiful furnishings. Looking right here in our beautiful Chayefem studio, got a wonderful wooden desk and this wonderful wooden furnishing surrounding me and the walls. And we see it's really, really nice. Made Lots of wonderful things can be fashioned out of wood. Even the paper in front of me comes from trees, from wood. But at the same time, we know that wood could rot and decay. It could get fraught. And that is our emotional side. It's like the wood. Some days we are wonderful, we're beautiful. We could fashion ourselves into the most amazing, beautiful human beings. And other days we're not so. But our outer appearance should always still be like our deepest essence. The outer box of the Ark of the Arana Kodesh was always gold. Our outer appearance should still, despite our sometimes wood-like personality that is not so golden, but the outside of us should be pure and shining, just like our very essence, just like who we are. And that takes me to another 
aspect of this Aaron, because where was the Aaron? It was in the innermost chamber of the Mishkan and later on in the Beis Hamikdash in the Temple in Jerusalem. It was in the Kodesh HaKadosh, in the most sacred site of Judaism, the Holy of Holies. And it was seen as the spiritual epicenter of the entire universe. But what was in this Kodesh Kadashim? Nothing except for the Ark. And what was inside the Ark? We described the three boxes, but what was inside them? All it contained was the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. And let's go further in the furnishing and the decor, the design of it. On top of the Aron was the two Keruvim. And we read about it in last week's Torah portion in Teruma, which describes us the Keruvim. Now, if you read Rashi's commentary, what is Keruvim? What is the meaning of the word cherubs? Rashi tells us that they had the angelic appearance of childlike faces that were facing each other. And again, a powerful lesson because on the one hand, they had their wings that were going toward heaven and the faces were toward each other, which again is another powerful lesson. That on the one hand, we should be having our wings towards heaven. We have to know and aspire to heaven, know where we come from, and be grateful to God Almighty for everything good in our life. And of course, to serve Hashem through our service of God, by studying Torah and doing our mitzvahs. But it doesn't end there. The faces were toward each other, which tells us again as well in our life, we have to be there for one another. Life is not only about our divine service. God put us in this world to be there for each other. So that's one aspect of the Keruvim of the cherubs. But Rashi tells us that the etymology is the word Ravia, which means like children. Or Ravia means children, so Keravia, or Keruvim, means like children. And this is the, obviously in the English language as well, the word, the very word cherub is a beautiful rosy-cheeked child. So on top of the golden lid of the holy ark, we had these two-winged golden appearances of children, the Keruvim, the cherubs. And of course, that was the place from between these faces that the voice of God was, God communicated with Moshe Rabbeinu. That's where God's voice reverberated. Now, here's something interesting. This is not the very first place where we find the word Keruvim in the Torah. Where else do we have the term? It appears previously. Where? In the third chapter of Bereshit and Genesis, where we know the story of Adam and Eve, who were in paradise, literally, in Gan Eden. And then they listened to the serpent, they ate from the tree they were told not to, and God evicts them from paradise. And there, if you read the verse in Bereshit, the word Keruvim appears once again. It says there that God expelled them from the garden and to prevent them from returning in the path of Gan Eden, God placed the revolving sword as well as the Keruvim to protect it, to prevent them from coming back in. What does the word Keruvim mean there? I mean, certainly it shouldn't be referring to these beautiful children. Are you going to put them in front of a uh, the revolving, the, the blade of the revolving sword, an electrical blender, You're going to keep Adam and Eve out with these angelic children. It doesn't make sense. So, of course, Rashi there tells us a different word. He tells us there the meaning of the word keruvim is malachei chabala. What is the word chabala? If you read Hebrew, modern Hebrew, mechabel means a terrorist. 
So Malachi Chabala are angels of terror, demons, angels of destruction. Here's something strange. On the one hand, the word Keruvim, in one context, and Bereshit, it means these demons, these demonic, destructive angels of terror. And at the same time, in Shemot, where we read about it in our portion, Rashi tells us it's beautiful, angelic children. How is it possible to be both? What are we missing here? Or perhaps we're describing that the very word Keruvim is the same Keruvim. But it all depends on the context in order to understand the meaning. Because how can Rashi on the one hand tell us that it means beautiful angelic children, but at the same time he tells us earlier that it's these nasty, scary, frightening agents of destruction. Which one is it? So let me share with you a beautiful explanation from our sages that perhaps Rashi is conveying and telling us about ourselves and maybe very importantly about educating our children. But it applies, I believe, to every single human being. The Keruvim that we encounter in Genesis and in Exodus are the same exact Keruvim. The very same wonderful, beautiful Kindalach, those Keruvim can be beautiful angelic souls, but at the same time they can be destructive. It all depends on the context in which these Keruvim develop. And it depends on the environment in which they are, so to say, molded. They're hammered out and crafted. Obviously, every one of us, as we said, is handcrafted by God Himself. And Adam and Eve were, indeed, they were the very first creations, the very first coin minted by God, of which we are the replicas, the duplicates. And just think about these very first ideal human beings. Handsome, flawless, brilliant. Think about all the riches in the world. Amount of real estate they must have possessed. The entire globe was theirs. And destined to live forever. Adam and Eve, they had no competition in, and no jealousy with anyone else. No one else existed. They didn't have to date. They didn't have to be in therapy to figure out if they married the right person. There was no other singles around. And just think about the economy. No foreclosures. No coronavirus. No health insurance. No school tuitions. Just think about that. Everything they want and all you can eat buffet in the Garden of Eden except, sorry, for one tree. And they were also just think about totally no competition from anyone else. Not even fashion concerns. They didn't have to buy designer clothing. We know that they basically lived in their birthday suits, but they lived a life of paradise. Just one restriction, as we said. One catch, one limitation. That one forbidden tree from which they couldn't eat. And that seemed to prove too much for them. They couldn't deal with the fact that something in the world was off limits to them. And what happens? Of every tree they could have eaten from, they had to go to the one that was forbidden. And they ate from it. And this, of course, marked the end of their idyllic life that they were experiencing in Gan Eden, in paradise, at the very beginning of, of creation. And it's in this context that Rashi is telling us 
The word keruvim is describing angels of destruction. The child or any person who's raised with this notion that there's nothing off limits to them, that there's nothing more important in their life than what they desire, than their lusts, there's no cause worth abstaining for, no moral values which precede their existence. And that's a child that's likely to grow up to become selfish, self-centered, narcissistic individual without the ability to build and maintain a healthy lifestyle of real, genuine relationships with others. Because this is a spoiled brat who just can't in any way shear and be there with another. And it's that person that that's described there as Malachi Chabala. Because that very person has the potential to be the angelic Reuven that are described in Terumah. But tragically, they turn into demons, to angels of destruction. And indeed, there are many kids who grow up like this. Everything is, nothing's off limits. It's all permissible to them. And yeah, they get expelled from school and they're evicted. They have problems and they end up blocking themselves and others from entering or experiencing paradise in their lives. Now, contrast that with the story that we're describing in the Mishka. Here, it's the very same crew and the very same children but in a very different location, very different context. Where are they? They're on top of the Ark of the Covenant. They're in the temple. What's inside the Ark? What's inside the Aaron? It's the tablets, the, the, the luchas, right? The divine tablets, the Torah. And when a child grows up with a sense that life is not just about my rights, but there are certain responsibilities that we have, that there are ideals and values that indeed are worth sacrificing for, that there's a limit to selfishness, to narcissism, that there's certain discipline that one needs in life, that person, the very same person, has the opportunity to grow up to become a beautiful, angelic, graceful human being. And that's a person in whose soul the voice of God could be heard, just as God's, God's voice resonated in the ark of the, in the Holy of Holies. That's where Moshe communicated with God. And it all depends whether we place ourselves in a place without any limitations where everything goes or we place ourselves in the ark which is saturated with godly values, with the majesty of the Torah. And that's the question we'll discuss in a moment. That's the question I want to leave you with as we go to the shop. What is the key factor into turning ourselves and our children into beautiful angelic souls or the opposite? We'll be right back. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. And welcome back to Salt to Salam Rabbi Arakiv. And we're talking here today about how we can become the ideal Keruvim, the ideal cherubs. And of course, it's Purim coming up in just a few days. So let's connect this a little bit with Purim because there's a very interesting statement in the Gemara. The Gemara asks a question, where do we find Haman in the Torah? The question the Gemara asks, Haman minatorah minayin. Where do we see, where do we find the idea of Haman? Now obviously, Haman was a Persian minister. We know the whole story, how he plotted genocide for the Jews. And we celebrate that defeat on Purim. As they say, he tried to kill us. We won, let's eat. But Haman lived so long after the, the Torah. I'm talking about the Hamisha Chamsha Torah, the five books of Moses were sealed. So the Talmud is not is obviously not saying where do we find Haman in the Torah? That's not possible. We're talking about a reference or the symbolism of Haman in the Torah, and the Talmud answers that Haman is 
in the story of Adam and Chava that we were describing their incident in paradise. When God approaches Adam after the, after eating from the tree of knowledge, and God asks him, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The word from there is Hamin Ha'etz, God asks him, which obviously has the same letters in Hebrew as Haman, because both are spelled Hey Mem Nun, except Hamin is, if you're, there's the vowels in Hebrew are beneath the letters. There's no A-E-I-O-U-Ys in the Torah, but rather vowels are beneath. And within the Torah itself, there are no vowels. That's why a Balkara, one who reads from the Torah, has to be a person who's proficient and studies and reviews and spends a lot of time. You should appreciate the Balkara in your shul who spends much time, probably a lot of their week and especially their Friday night, preparing and reviewing and reading from the Torah and making sure they get it right. But there's no vowels within the Torah. And if a person reads it wrong... It could mean something completely different. So the word could be read as Hamin or Haman. This is strange. What's the relationship between Haman and the word Hamin? What's the connection? And here the Talmud tells us something that might sound a little bit, you know, what's the connection? What's the relationship? It seems far-fetched. Nice Yiddish word, far-fetched. It might even seem funny. Oh, you're just taking the words. But the word Haman and Hamin, although they might seem to have no connection, Except for the same letters, Haman is a name and Amin is a question. One is a Persian anti-Semite who we're going to make a lot of noise and eat hamantashen made out of de- delicious hamantashen. You know, that's what happens to anti-Semites. Anti-Semites become a gastronomic delight for Jews. From, from Pharaoh, we got our matzahs and from, from who else was there? We had, uh, on Hanukkah, right? We turned them into latkes, and here on Purim we got our hamantashen. Well, what is the connection? What is the relationship? And here is the idea that Haman, if we think of him very similar to Adam, in a sense, Haman had everything. He was wealthy, he was famous, he was an influential, powerful, prestigious diplomat. He had everything going for him. He had a nice, beautiful, large family. He was the viceroy of Persia. He was, I mean, think about the Persian Empire was the most, was the world's dominant empire at the time. And the king commanded all of the subjects of the entire region. Anyone who saw Haman had to prostrate themselves to him. What was Haman lacking in the world except for one thing? Mordechai would not bow down to him. And because of that one thing, this one Jew got in his way. He just couldn't handle it. The sight of this Mordechai defying his ego, that enraged him. And to the extent that everything else became meaningless. For a man who had everything, you think about him, he lived in, he had paradise. But Mordechai was his forbidden fruit. And perhaps we can understand then what the Gemara is asking. Why would the Talmud ask this question? Haman min Torah minayin. Where do we find a reference, this concept, the symbolism of Haman in the Torah? Essentially, the Talmud is asking, where can we find in the Torah this spiritual root? Haman's personality, this characteristic. Where do they make such people from? And the answer is, people who have everything but it's not good enough. 
what's, what type of therapy? What cure is there for such people? Because such people exist and everything in the Torah, it's not just his story, but it's our story. And so when we read these stories, there has to be a message, a lesson, a pragmatic, personal application that's relevant to us in our lives today. And perhaps this is the answer. God is asking Adam, did you really eat from the tree? I mean, I ate. The word Haman was within there. God placed Adam and Eve in this most beautiful garden of Eden. He gave him everything, just one tree to abstain from. And instead of being content, satisfied with everything they had, they felt that they just have to have more. There was this sense of greed. We need more. And that is why they lost it. You think about the burning Madoffs of our time. You think about those who plenty of others in our, in, in, in our era today. And so the Talmud is saying, if you're content with what you have, then you have so much. Ezehu Ashir and Prikyavat, we ask the question, who is truly wealthy? Hasameach Bechelko, the one who's content, who's happy with their lot. But if you want it all, then you lose it. To be human is to be able to say no to greed and selfishness. And that perhaps is the message and lesson to us. And maybe we'll just discuss this question when we're back. Are we satisfied with what we have? Are we craving more? Spiritually, it's okay to crave more. But when it comes to physical matters, do we need to just keep on searching for more and it's not good enough what we have? Let's talk about that. And please feel free to share your insight. Send your message here to the studio. I'll be happy to discuss it in our remaining time. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. And welcome back to Soul to Soul in our remaining little time. Let's just quickly review what we discussed today. The importance, the very same Karuvim, these cherubs can be either beautiful, angelic, childlike faces or can be demons, angels of destruction. The question is, which will be? Will we be the demonic angels of destruction or will we be beautiful souls? And the answer lies on where the Kiruvim are placed. Are we in paradise? And we all, this is God's beautiful garden, this world, as we discussed a few weeks ago, reviewing the discourse, Basti Ligani, the words of King Solomon, God calls this world paradise. It's God's beautiful garden. We tend to the garden. The question is in this beautiful garden, how are we caring? Are we selfless or are we selfish? What kind of atmosphere do we create in our home for our families, for our children, for ourselves? An environment in which God is the priority, in which there is rules of discipline, like the Kruvim that were placed on top of the ark, that's an environment of selflessness. Or are we, like Adam and Eve, we need to have everything, including what's forbidden, a place of selfishness. Is our excitement, our passion, our enthusiasm about something spiritual or is it only about physical? Is it the latest Jewish book or or something spiritual that exhilarates us? Is it about what's going on in the Holy Land in Israel that stimulates our emotions? Or is it the latest gazet, gadgets or gizmos that's exciting us? Nothing wrong with those. You could use your latest iPhone or Samsung or whatever you like for Torah, for spiritual purposes as well. Are we becoming animated when we're talking about spiritual things or about the latest movies, cars and politics? Or is it something about our community, about Purim, 
about a vart in the parsha of this week, about a mitzvah we just did, about going to the assisted living facility, about going into the nursing home, about visiting the sick. What is it that ticks us? What is it that excites us? With what kind of lifestyle are we inspiring and influencing those around us? And that's how we'll see the different type of growth, both the way we nurture our children and ourselves. Is it the spiritual or the material that matters? So the angelic kruvim that were on top of the ark, that's where we see the beauty that is represented by a lifestyle that is inspired and influenced by the beauty of Torah. Where it's not just seen as a history book, Bible means history, or Torah, which means instruction. That means I see our story, the relevance to my life. By making our homes into an ark, and with an attitude that everything that really truly matters is the Torah, the mitzvahs, and the future of our people. Then we bask in nachas from our children and from ourselves, because we realize we're putting ourselves in the right direction. So with Purim upon us, I want to ask you, we know some people like to say, oh, Purim is the Jewish Halloween. No, it's not. Halloween is trick or treat. Halloween is about how we could trick someone else. It's about the stunts. It's selfishness. It's about what I can get. Purim, on the other hand, is about the treats, about giving to others. Think about the mitzvahs of Purim. Yes, we read the Megillah. We always read the Torah. But Purim is about extra. It's about being more proudly Jewish. We don't just read it once at night. We read it a second time by day. Here's a mnemonic for the mitzvahs of Purim. It's all in the letter M. Then we have Mishloach Manot. Mishloach Manot is about not just about myself. It's about sharing gifts, camaraderie, love with others. And it's not just about my friends, but it's Matanot Le'avyonim. What am I giving to the poor, to the less privileged? Caring for others not just my own friends, but even those who I don't know. But it's about a cure, a concern for society around me. It's not about selfishness. It's that's demonstrating the selflessness. It's the complete opposite of narcissism. And then we have a beautiful meal, maybe a masquerade. We realize that, of course, we have our covers, our facade, but deep within ourselves, there's the core, the essence of who we truly are. And that true essence is what we described before the are in the ark. The inside box of the ark, the core, the pintalayid, our neshama, our soul, recognizing our true personality. And in that sense, recognizing the person next to us is also fashioned in the very same image of God. And therefore, if we see the other as ourselves, then we'll be less, cent- less self-centered and more selfless, caring and concerned for society around ourselves as well. So I wish you all a beautiful, splendid, and joyous Purim, one in which we show that care, that concern, that love for the others around us as well. And of course, as you delve into the Torah portion this week, we read the portion of Tetzava, which describes the the vestments, the clothing, the garments of the Kohanim. And to realize that it's not just our physical body that wears clothing, but wears garments of the soul as well. Our machshava dibramaiser, our thought, speech, and action is what Kabbalah tells us is the garments of the soul. And sometimes our thoughts might not be so clean or pure. Guess what? You can clean it just like you can send your clothing to the dry cleaners or clean it yourself. And our speech, we could work on refining it. We could fix 
the garments of our soul, just as we can change the garments of our body, we could refine them, we could purify them, we could cleanse them. And so if you're going through whatever trouble, well, guess what? You could always fix it. You get knocked down, you get back up again. Our soul, just like our body, we could change the clothing. We could always refine ourselves and the clothing we wear. And it's a very important message and lesson of the Mishkan that we've been describing in the Torah portions reading this week. Because this is the message about you being indispensable to God's plan for this world. And that's why God gives us these garments, these special clothing. And that's why God gives us the ability to build a home, a resting place for God here in this world. Let's do our part. And with Purim coming up, I just want to make a shout out to all the senior citizens to join us at our Chabad Senior Citizens Party, where we got our DJ, uh, we got Ezra Salaska coming, who was going to sing songs, and we got uh, DJ Jeremy is coming, and we got lots of good food and hamantashen. So please join us at Chabad House on Purim Day, 10.30 in the morning. Have Hear the Megillah. Get some Shalach Manas. Have some entertainment. We're going to have a wonderful bingo game with the kids from Tzivas Hashem. This will be a really fabulous event. And to everyone else, bring the joy of Purim to all those around you. A good Shabbos. And don't forget to listen to the portion of Zachar as well this Shabbos and Shul. And be at the Purim celebrations at your Shul or wherever there's so many going on around town. Carpe diem. Seize every moment. We'll be back, please God, next week. Same time, same place. All the best.